Hey guys, welcome to the 12-6 podcast. I'm your host, Colin McHugh. Today, we are talking to big league starting pitcher, Charlie Morton. Charlie was my teammate with the Houston Astros for two seasons and might just be the most interesting man in MLB, if not the world. Today, we talk about his karaoke dreams, injuries, and how data is the new bacon. If you like today's episode, subscribe so that you're always caught up whenever we release new episodes. So without further ado, I hope you all enjoy today's conversation with Charlie Morton. Well, my buckle makes impressions on the inside of her thigh. What's your go-to karaoke song? I don't have one. I don't sing karaoke. I've sang karaoke at a karaoke bar one time. I think I sang Run Run by George Strait because Boone Logan asked me to sing it. Uh We were there in Scranton with my wife and Boone, and we were at this karaoke bar. And he was missing home. He's from Holotus, Texas, outside of San Antonio. And he was like, man, I really would like for you to sing Run. So I sang it. He tugged on your heartstrings. Yeah, well, who doesn't? Any country music fan likes George Strait. <laughs> I guess that I, that would make me in the... I don't know George Strait very much because I didn't... Personally. I did not, I did not know him personally. I also do not know much of his music because I know people in Texas are going to really hate me for that. But... I didn't grow up listening to country music. <clears throat> I grew up listening to hmm. hip hop in Atlanta. Uh, I grew up listening to like oldies, like the Beatles and Rolling Stones and Herman's Hermits and all that kind of stuff that my dad liked to listen to. And yeah, it was country came later on in life for me. So when you say hip hop, what falls under the classification of hip hop to you? Um, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before too, but <clears throat> the idea that it being from Atlanta... You have to, you you really do have to kind of embrace it a little bit. It's it's kind of part of the culture there. So like Outkast, I loved Outkast mm-hmm. growing up. Usher wasn't hip hop really, but he was featured on hip hop tracks, and he was like the R and B pop. I mean, God before Justin Timberlake, uh, he was amazing. Jermaine Dupri, huge producer out of Atlanta. Guys, don't forget the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Shout out the Ying Yang Twins in Atlanta. That's uh, awesome. I don't know. I don't know what hip. I'm. I'm not. I'm no. not one of those guys. I don't have to put it necessarily in a box for me. I. I like some of the new hip hop. I dislike some of the new hip hop. Same with the old stuff. I always equated hip hop with a lyricist, like somebody that you could put in a park, like like how they used to do it. Like they'd be in the in the park and just telling stories that rhymed. Like who, a, who, like was in the, who was in the park telling like that, stories? Well, that was the origination of hip hop. Oh, back in like Harlem and stuff, and like yeah, in Chicago. Yeah, and so like I listened to a lot of um, Most Def, mm. Talib Kweli, yeah, and Common, who's not a New York guy, but he's you know Chicago. The Roots, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, like the. I'm really into storytelling. So the if you're if you're a good storyteller, it, it translates. You know, if you're you can give insight to a world that you you have no idea what it's like in just a small window. It's true. So who's the storyteller of today? Hip hop. Who's your guy? I don't I don't really follow it that much. Oh. I, I and I think we were talking about yep. Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick and I I I thought that his he seemed pretty versatile. He comes to mind for sure. So I don't, yeah, I don't know if you would agree or disagree. I love Chance the rapper too. Okay, yeah, you were mentioned. You mentioned Chance him, and I out of Chicago, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of that. Like I'm guilty of not following. Like I'll still listen to 
I said records, but <laughs> where's your record player in here? I have mine at home. I do. I have the uh, I have the new record player that I play old records on, like a true hipster. Yeah, see, that's something that I never got into. <laughs> I got into I, from the recording standpoint. I did get into like like filters or you know things like the, where you can you can kind of manipulate the sound to make it sound like an older recording, but I never. Sat down and I was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pour a glass of wine, <laughs> bust out the record player. I told you I'm coming to you. I was coming to you for all of my podcast edits because <laughs> nobody. I, then we'll talk about this again later. But nobody I know in baseball knows more about a wider range of things than Charlie Morton. I pretend uh, to. If you know, you pretend just, really well. If that's okay, the case, good. all right. Because if you know just a little bit on the surface, you can fake it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. I guess I haven't really like called you out on a lot of these things. Yeah, you should. <laughs> it's gonna happen. <laughs> hey, thanks for being on the podcast, though. Thanks for I, having uh, me. I've been specifically really excited about this one because of what we just talked about. Uh, well, I'm I'm two handing the mic right now. You are. We are. Uh, my podcast <clears throat> setup is is amateurish at best, but we do have microphones, and Charlie is clutching this thing like it's about to run away. This is the first time I've held a microphone in a long time, so one where I'm, you know expressing myself and, and I don't feel like I'm being watched very carefully. I'm watching you very carefully. Okay. Well, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. <laughs> uh, no, we are going to go do karaoke this year though. Okay. It's, it's on the calendar now. See, I would rather, I'd rather us just go to a, go to somewhere where we could, you know, pull out the, the guitars and be like, Hey, you, oh, you're going on break. Oh, okay. So, what do you think? Maybe 10 minutes? We could probably make that happen. 10 minutes? And because I've done that before. When I see, we were talking about this at, when we were eating sushi, being not aggressive, but socially confident and starting conversations. Like I would never be able to go up to somebody and say, hey, man, you're, gonna, you're going on break, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you're going to go take that, you know, and hey, would you mind if I played your guitar and sang? <clears throat> but sometimes people actually like that. Like, and, and usually musicians do, people that appreciate music, like, they want to hear other people sing and play. 100%. My sister is a, my sister and brother were both singer-songwriters, um, and my sister lives in Nashville. And in Nashville, I feel like it's common practice to have these kind of house get-togethers where mm. they're called, I think they just pass the guitar around, I forget what they call them, but um, yeah, there's one guitar, you just pass it around, and these songwriters play their songs and drink a little whiskey and hang out and uh, it looks like the greatest time. Yeah, well, they they seem to be in their element. You know, it'd be like, um, you know, like they're just hanging out, like they're just having conversations, but it just involves music, which is pretty awesome for guys like us that do appreciate that kind of thing. I mean, you go to like a Bluebird Cafe or a setting like that where it's really intimate. And um, man, that'd be really cool. That'd be the best. Yeah. I, I always talk about this, the idea that, when I'm talking to my musician friends, they are just enthralled by baseball and baseball life and the baseball culture. And I think in another life, they would a thousand percent be baseball players if they could. And I always tell them, in any other life, if I got to choose, I would 100% be a rock star. Like it is, it looks like the coolest thing to me. Tour bus time and like, you know, you're playing in front of audiences, every, different audiences every night, in different cities. <laughs> and it's not so dissimilar from what we do, but it is just foreign enough to me that I can say that I would like it without knowing any of the details at all. Well, like the grass always greener kind of thing. Always. But I, so people have asked me that, like, hey, 
would you like to be a musician? And I'm like, yeah, I'll, you know, sign like a big record label and tour and make lots of money. And I was always like, man, you know, I'd love to just sign with an indie, an indie label. <laughs> just, you know, write my stuff and play like in middle school auditoriums to like people who... <laughs> <laughs> Old folks homes. Yeah. You know, like um, like we were talking about Jason Isbell and who's who's become pretty well known. But like I saw Robert O'Keefe play at a middle school auditorium in Connecticut. I saw Chris Knight play at a middle school auditorium in, in Connecticut. And granted, I mean, these are guys that are on like the the red dirt circuit, like down in Texas, Oklahoma, and and then they played a you know pretty big audiences there. But for a, a guy who grew up in Connecticut, and I went and see saw to see somebody that I really look up looked up to and. That was pretty sweet, and and the and Bluebird Cafe, like we went. I saw Robbie Heck play it, play there with my with my wife, and like it just seems so awesome. We're all, we're all we all want to be musicians at heart. Yeah, yeah, but the but I don't know the. I think baseball gave, gave us a little bit of insight into the the other aspects of people. A lot of people knowing who you are and what oh, you're yeah. doing. How, you know your, how much money you make. It's definitely know. not all roses. You know, well, no, but but that that idea that you live for the crowd, that crowd noise, that kind of thing. When to when when music to me, like you walk in the weight room and you're like, all right, well, we know who's in who's working out in here because you know you got some like somebody telling a story about how they found right. their wife in the in the woods somewhere, <laughs> she got lost and didn't make it home. You know, and that's like the kind of stuff I like listening to. Like, just I'm like Charlie, Charlie's doing his pull-ups in here right now. <laughs> so, yeah, he's fired up. Charlie's doing his pull-ups to the sad folk music. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, let's, uh, we'll talk a little bit about baseball. Um, we, don't, we don't talk a lot about baseball on these shows, but we talk about enough. Everybody else does interviews every day with us about, oh, what, are you, what kind of pitches do you throw? And let me talk to you about your spin rate. And mm. let's talk about your B-war, which I don't want to bring it up. Let's talk I know about it's, it. I know, it's a, I know it's a touchy subject We for should you. talk about it, though. It's going up, though. Your B-war is on the way up. It's negative. But and, it's less negative than it was. Yeah, well, it's embarrassing. <laughs> And like today, so when I, and I was, I don't know if I told you, and I think, I, I don't know if I did, but I was really hoping to get my spring training ERA below four, career ERA below four, and today I took a big hit on that one. Wait, you know your career spring training ERA? I, I looked it up the other day, like a week ago, because in my mind, things are kind of winding down, you know, tail end, maybe last couple of years here. So I'm like, I wonder how I did in spring training, you know? Yeah. And I looked it up and I was... I wasn't pleasantly surprised, but I was surprised because it was in the low fours, which isn't that's huge. It's not great, but it's within you know reach of getting below there. I mean, that's below major league average. Well, then today I gave up nine runs, so well. so it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be really hard. It's gonna be it's gonna be really tough. Yeah. <clears throat> so my B WAR and my spring career spring training ERA are just. I have never had a spring training with less than a seven ERA. I can confidently say that I am. Well, if people, if if I was just trying to make teams every year on my spring training success, I would never make a team. That's why I never made a team until I had success in the big leagues because I was sincerely horrible mm. in spring training. Well, the uh, got my brother-in-law sent me a T-shirt. It says "Data is the new bacon." So, <laughs> isn't it so true in baseball though? Yeah. So we got some we got some data. Maybe there's more data than just my ERA that that matters. Yep. Maybe my spin rate is just off the charts. It is. Yours is too. Well, we have good spin rates. We have great spin <laughs> rates. I'm really glad that you're with the Astros now because we are 
um, a team that believes in the curveball. We believe yeah. in it like passion, like religiously. We love it. Which is a kind of a relief because it's like the mentality for so long was get ahead with your fastball, establish your fastball. And so what happens if I can't get out with my fastball? <laughs> <laughs> I am in trouble. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, but you throw you throw hard. Okay, well, I, I can't get out with my fastball. You know? Have, is this the same curveball you've been throwing for a long, long time since like high school? Um, I always had a pretty good curveball. Yeah. And my... And I, I was surprised when I was at some point in the past few years when I looked up my average against my curveball, it was on um, pretty large sample size that it how good it was or how effective it was. Yeah. Not necessarily good, but effective. So that gave me a little more confidence to throw it. But then in 2012, A.J. Burnett, when he came to the Pirates, he showed me the knuckle curve grip and mm -hmm. it, it changed a little bit, threw a little bit harder, moved a little bit differently. differently. And then that's that. It's great. It's a great pitch. What about you? I've thrown the exact same curveball with the exact same grip since I was 13 years old. And just now, am wow. I starting to like mess around with it a little bit, spike it just every once in a while or shape it? I've just always been able to spin it really well. well and so yeah. I just have never really... Well, that's all you got to do. It's slow though. It's not hard. It's not hard like you and Lance's. But it's physics. <laughs> it is moving down. So If that, you spin it a lot, it'll move a lot relative to... Other curveballs that are moving at the same speed. That's true. It's a gravity ball sometimes. 9.8 meters per second per second. What is that? Is it science? It's like the gravitational constant of the Earth or something. Why would anyone know that? I apologize to any of our fans who know that. I think that's what it is. If it's not it, sorry. But you never went through a physics phase? I was you never like very this. good at physics. This is the ironic thing about me. I was never really good at math. I got by. I got by in math. Wow. I was a pretty good student. I got by, but I was never naturally gifted in it. So then I went to college and naturally decided I was going to be a, fin a finance major. Go figure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, physics in high school, physics and chemistry both in high school were basically math science to me. And I was like, eh, I'll stick to biology and physiology. And those were more my, uh, my speed. Yeah. It's like you, you can't really, you can apply physics to everyday things, but it's not like. I think physics is extremely interesting. My brother-in-law is an engineer, uh, some mechanical engineer at University of Georgia, and he is already way smarter than I will ever be. He's just, yeah, physics is, just comes naturally. It just comes naturally to him. Like he just, he thinks in physics. I don't know if that's the he way you do. He can just play. He can just play. He can just play. So take it back. You grew up in New Jersey. No, you grew up, you born in New Jersey, grew up in Connecticut. There we go. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I've done my research on you. I know a little bit about you. Um, high school in Connecticut, drafted in the third round by the Atlanta Braves in 2002. A draft that included Jeff Francoeur by the Braves and uh, first rounder for the Braves, second rounder for the Braves, Brian McCann, our new teammate. Well, our current teammate. It is crazy to me and uh, it just extremely out of the ordinary that all three of you guys have had such distinguished careers. Um, that almost never happens in teams draft in teams drafts and Atlanta, I mean, obviously hit the nail on the head. Yeah, on that one. Well, you were talking more about the um, from a service time standpoint. Yeah, I mean guys that are like Frenchie, I don't know if he has like eight, nine, ten years. Yeah. Are you have you have you surpassed ten years or are you coming up on it? Coming up on it. Yep. So that'll be three three guys in one draft that all ten plus years of service time, which is outrageous. Yeah, I don't know. It does say like when you look at it, 
that way it does seem like it would be unlikely to happen because it takes a lot. Like we know how they talk to us about it in the PA meetings, or whatever. How you know, getting to ten years, you might you might think, oh, it's happens a lot, but it really doesn't. So I'm hoping. <laughs> Our fingers are crossed for oh, you. Yeah. We're gonna throw a big party for you, yeah. big ten year party. Yeah, I, I don't, I doubt it. We're gonna go karaoke. We can. We should do something like that. We will. I prefer. I'd prefer something like that. Okay, we'll we do it. Low key. We'll do it. No, it's a big deal. It's uh, in, in in the world of it baseball, is. playing ten years in the big leagues is really difficult to do. It takes a lot of hard work. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot luck. of sacrifice, and it takes a lot of luck. Yeah, you're right. Ton of luck. Like, Ton of luck. Like, like if you look at, I was I was talking to my wife about it today. Like if you look at my, I'd, I'd had f- uh, four surgeries that kept me out for five months or longer within five years. And a lot of times when something like that happens or you're remotely close, one or two, something like that, where it can really derail a career. You know, you might have a really bad season and a team DFAs you and you really never make it back because they just don't take you seriously anymore. And I was really fortunate, lucky, the timing of all those those injuries. And then lucky to have medical staff that was competent and hardworking and I mean, it's the big leagues. Like most guys are professionals. Yeah, but there's. Medic, but I mean, there are some. There are some. Yeah, you never know. Others, you yeah. never know. But I, that's why I, from in my case, you know, a guy like a guy like Brian, just was has been such a good ball player for so long. Yeah. But for me, it's a guy like me who's just kind of like up and down, you know, up and down. And I mean, when I look back on it, I'm like, man, I really wasn't that bad. But <laughs> I'm like. It, it, I, I would look at it kind of as a, as as much fortunate as anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. There is a there is a certain level of raw good luck that has to go your way to play for even as long as like I'm pushing five years in the big leagues, and it's there are a thousand reasons why I shouldn't be playing still. But the We've fact been playing a pro ball a long time too, right? The fact that we are, yeah, I got drafted in 2008, so um, yeah. yeah, it's been a decade in pro ball at this point. But there is also something to be said for just sticking it out, you know, just being having that stick to it attitude, whether, because uh, I think you know just as well as, as any player does. I, I always tell people there's two to three times every season that every professional baseball player thinks about retiring every year. Yeah, or at least when am I going to retire? Yeah. You know, not maybe not like maybe next week, <laughs> <laughs> but the thought certainly, is, you know, how much longer is my career going to go? How much longer... Do I really want to do this? Yeah, it's difficult, and especially with a family. You're you're married with uh, three kids, and how long have you been married for? Six years. Six years. Yeah, it's. I've been married. I've been married uh, eight, almost nine years now, and it's being married in Major League Baseball. I always tell people that it's it's like three years for every one year in uh, in non baseball life, just because life comes at you so fast. You're moving so many, so much. You know, you're uprooting your family and your life. You know, two to three times a year. And if you get traded or uh, go to different organizations like you and I both have, things get even more complicated. So we were just talking about it today about finding housing in different cities when you don't live there and you got a family and you have specific needs. It's it's easy. It, it would be easier to say, I'm good. I could I could probably take it take it back to the house now and do something else with the rest of my life. We've made some good money. We've feel like we've accomplished something. But there's something to, about sticking to it that that really does go a long way. And and ten years is a significant significant time to do that. Yeah, well, you're. We like challenges. We like, you know, we we like doing things that are difficult. We're masochists. Well, yeah, I mean, and 
you're like, well, this is, this is really hard and you have the opportunity to do it and to overcome some of those challenges. No, I'm good. I'm all set. Like, <laughs> thanks. I've had enough. Like, and, so, and, and you, you start to see that, I think in yourself, that you start to get to a point where you're like, yeah, I, I can see where I'm like, no, I'm, I actually am okay with stop. Like if I stop playing right now, I'd be okay. But at the same time, you're like, ah, but it's those, those, those benefits from the game that you get and not just money, but the, you know, it's still there. What are the, what are the things that you, yeah, besides, I know what you're talking about besides financially, what are the things that when you're done with baseball, you're going to miss, you're going to look back and be like, oh, those are the things that you just, it's hard to get back, get that back in real life. The camaraderie. And it's really about the the guys in the clubhouse for me. Because there are not many situations on the ball field that we haven't gone through multiple times by now. You know, it, I mean, maybe like winning the World Series, that's one thing. But yeah, like I'm talking about like individual plays. You go out there, oh, I can give up another double. All right, I got a back of a base here. Or, you know, I got a cover here or I made this pitch and the guy swung and missed. And it's like thousands of times like you've thrown the ball and, you know, how many times you've gotten the same result? Probably a bunch. Thousands know? and thousands Even of though times. Even though you might look back at your stats and be like, I don't I don't remember balking that many times. I don't remember throwing me that many wild pitches. I don't remember, you know, all these things. And you're like, but I did. And then, but I, um, when I would leave PNC Park at, after I after I pitched, especially because I would leave a little bit later because I had some stuff to do after I pitch, you know, I, I I you cross the outfield if you want to. You can walk through the tunnel around, or you can walk across the field. And I'd walk across the field, and by then, you know, all the stadium lights have been turned off, and there were these little blue lights that were up on the up on the light towers. And <clears throat> I'll always remember looking at the skyline, the Pittsburgh skyline, and how how the stadium looked without all the people there, without the game there, and how how special that was to me and how unique that was to me. Like when we like when we clinched in um in Boston. Yeah. I still remember that. I'll remember when the all the lights go off. Like like the hallowed grounds of the ball field. Yeah. You know, like it because when the lights are shining and the people are there, it's so much about that that game yeah the that moments moment, that are happening yeah. then but when all the lights go off and the setting is kind of like that and you're walking out it's real quiet you can you can sense things that have happened there previous to that like in 2013 in uh in rig at wrigley we uh we clinched a wild card spot and then the same thing cut the lights off little bit of a crescent moon up in the sky <laughs> and you just look out and wrigley field and like all the things that have happened there I think to me, and I honestly, I think that's kind of what, like, how my career's gone as well. Like, how the things that I appreciate, it used to be in my face. The crowd used to feel on top of me. Yeah. The game felt like it was 150 pounds on my back. And I think the things I start to appreciate now are more of the opportunity they have to be part of things that are special, groups that are special, play in special places in front of fans in Houston this summer. For sure. I mean, yeah, I'll never forget uh, in Boston last year when we when we clinched game four. We finished. Uh, we had sprayed champagne in the, their tiny little cl- visitors clubhouse, and I came back outside. I was looking for my wife, couldn't find her in the crowd, so I I walked back out into the like stands of the stadium, and yeah, it was the same thing. It was raining. 
There was nobody in there except one security guard. I think he was on the phone to his wife telling her <laughs> that he was going to be late because we were because we were running late. And it just yeah, you look at it and you think, wow, like not many people get to experience this. Yeah. And I think I'm I'm faced with that m- most days when I play baseball. I think, man, like there is there is something about this that just I'll never get to do. Most people will never get the opportunity to do. So like, yeah, enjoy it. Like take advantage of it and enjoy it and and make those memories. But yeah, I think you're right. There's something about being in a clubhouse with 25 guys for eight months, 24 <laughs> seven. That is something that's hard mm-hmm. to replicate in real life. Yeah, and then you go on the road and you live together. Yeah, in really. The same house, which is that hotel. That same that same giant <laughs> house with lots rooms. of rooms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you remember those minor league days where you had to share rooms with people? But that wasn't so bad because I mean it was if you didn't really get along with the person. But I've never really had problems getting along. I mean, in general, with people. You're a nice person, Chuck. I, I, yeah. You're easy to get along with. Well, no, it is. I, well, I, I I try to be, but I I do remember. You get to the park and you're in some town where you don't know where you are and there's nothing open and you go back to the hotel and fortunately you got some pals back there. You got an Xbox or a couple, you hook them up, you know, do some do some multiplayer. <laughs> you got a group of like seven dudes in one room and, you know, six or seven in the other and you're switching out controllers and ordering pizza and you know, you're making it work. You're just trying to figure it out. We were all just trying to figure it out in the minor leagues. Yeah. Well, and I don't know about you, but to me, the minor leagues was just the low minors because I think there's a huge difference. I felt like I was just trying to be part of the process. Like for every, everybody's going through it and you're trying to, you're trying to adhere to your, your schedule, trying to be a professional, but at the same time, you're still a kid trying to have fun I felt like I I made a lot of friends in the minor leagues. When I got to the the higher levels, like when you start mixing with guys that have been in the big leagues, come down, get sent down, a little salty. You know, guys are back and forth. Guys are just breaking through. They just can't get their opportunity. And then you get to the big leagues, and it's all business. Like especially for me when I was when I was younger, just trying to establish myself a little bit. Yeah, like. Nobody's trying to be friends with me. Like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm. You got called up at, by the Braves in 2008. 2008. First big league appearance or first big league start. You got your first big league win, right? Six innings, three runs. Brian McCann, catcher. Brian McCann, catcher. It all comes full circle. In LA. Yep. Area code games, Long Beach, de- big league debut, Anaheim. We won the World Series. LA. LA. Wow. Southern California has got a special place in your baseball heart. Yeah. Man, that's a big deal. No, so you came up in that Atlanta team. I grew up in Atlanta, so I remember when you were drafted. I remember this draft because... Unfortunately. (laughs) Braves fans, sorry that you didn't get too many years of Chuck, but... I wish I had been better because I I liked it there. It was a great... I mean, as a fan in Atlanta, you just assumed that your team was going to win every year. They were just so good. And I remember that draft because they drafted... Francoeur and McCann, both hometown Atlanta kids, which the Braves did a lot of, but they drafted both of them. And I had seen them play in high school. I'd seen them play against each other in high school. And I thought, wow, this is like, this is the next, these are going to be the next Chipper Jones, the next, you know, Dale Murphy, whoever. They ended up being great players, but um, I had never met you until, uh, until you got over here to the Astros. But you got traded from Atlanta to Philly. No, no, excuse me, to Pittsburgh. 
back in 2009. So you weren't with the Braves for more than about a year. Not in the big leagues. Not in the big leagues. I got called up in June of 08. I was up with the team for the rest of the year. 09, spring training, I didn't make the team. I mean, I started the team. I started the season on the big league DL, oblique, pulled my fat. (laughs) (laughs) The first of many, of a long list of strange injuries. Strange. It's been it's been a, a wild a wild ride in the terms of uh, the DL time. Things weird things happen. Weird things happen. Weird things happen. <laughs> but you went you got traded to Pittsburgh and you spent um, parts of five years in Pittsburgh. Seven. Seven years in Pittsburgh and uh, Garrett Cole's on our team now. You mm-hmm. spent some time with Garrett Cole. I met him in 2012, I think. Then we we got to know each other a little bit better in 2013 because I was rehabbing from Tommy John and he was on the fast track and we got we actually i can't remember if we went we were on the same flight to pittsburgh but we went back to pittsburgh pretty much at the same time and then he debuted the next day that we got back to pittsburgh and he threw i think it was the giants he threw against the giants and then i pitched against the giants the next night and i remember his his debut and how hard he was throwing. He still throws really <laughs> he hard. He still throws really hard. All you guys just throw really hard <laughs> he now. Throws, he, throws, he throws very hard. It's uh, it's pretty intimidating sometimes going out there and looking at the radar gun and saying, uh, r- reminding myself that I'm never going to be that guy. Well, you never know. Go do something. <laughs> McHugh, go work on something else. Go work on spinning some curveballs. Yeah, so you spent parts of seven years in Pittsburgh and then towards the end of... Your tenure there, or you were traded to Philly. Yep. After the 2015 season, I did not pitch well in 2015. I, I was still under contract. I was still under team control for two years um, with a team option, but they traded me with a with a year's year remainder of you know guaranteed salary to Philly, and then I was with Philly for four starts. <laughs> Another freak injury. I mean, I'm running down. I get a. I put a bunt down. It was a bad bunt. I'm running to first base, and I hear the catcher, Luke Roy. There was a man on first. I get the bunt down, but it wasn't a good bunt. It was kind of up the middle, and I heard Luke Luke Roy yelling two two. So I don't want to get doubled up. So I tried to turn on the Jets, and I blew out my hammy. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't know, you know, at the time how severe it was because I. I'd always. I kind of figured, you know. It can't be that bad, right? And then I realized when I got up, my leg was just kind of dangling and I couldn't, I had really no control. And Mickey Morandini helped carry me off the field. Mick. Oh, man, you got to be kidding me, dude. He <laughs> carried me off the field. And then the doc laid me on the table there in Milwaukee. And he's like, I think I feel a defect, which means that, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a soft tissue, there's a disruption injury to the, to the tendon there, and then sure enough, they stuck me in the tube, and and it was gone. The so, MRI tube and the hamstring was gone. Yeah. Yep. And then Doctor Cohen still have to send him a jersey. <laughs> Doc, it's on the way. Don't worry. <laughs> he did the he did the repair, and, and it's still hanging on now. Yeah. So you, I wanted to ask you about this because I'm extremely interested in this, especially after this past off season. So you finished up your contract in Philly, and you were a free agent. So when free agency started for you, you know, you've worked at this point, you've worked for seven plus eight plus years to try and get to free agency, which a lot of guys have, you know, by the time, if I'm fortunate enough to get to free agency, it will be a 12 year process in pro ball 
um, to try and get get those years seven get seven full seasons or six full seasons to get to free agency. So when you got to free agency, how did how did that all play out? Did the Astros contact you and say, "Hey, we really want you"? Or did you say, "Hey, I'd love to go play for uh, a team that's like the Astros on the brink?" Of well, life? no, because I I came off a season in 2015 where I had a four and a half ERA in in Pittsburgh, and I guess I, you know, looking back, I guess it's not that awful. Maybe it was like four eight. I don't know. It wasn't good. But it wasn't like it wasn't like a seven. It wasn't horrendous, yeah. Because I'd had a seven before, and it wasn't that. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, the chuck of oh eight to to ten, you know. It was just a bad, you know, a bad year. So I go into sixteen, and um, I'm like, eh, it'd be really nice if I could throw halfway decent right now, and I could stay healthy. Fortunately, I threw well. Your your first four starts were they were it was outrageously okay. good. Well, the, the peripherals, yeah, peripherals were were pretty good. Okay, um, and the stuff was good. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, I covered that half of the other half. Not so much staying healthy, throwing. I don't even know what to expect out of myself anymore. Twenty plus starts, twenty five starts. You know what's my what's like a good body of work for me? Right. But I didn't do it coming into last year. Right, so coming to free agency. Mm-hmm. So I'm in no position in my mind to ask anybody for anything. I'm just, I'm just, I talked to my agent and, after, and I was like, hey, do you think, you know, do you think anybody's going to call? Like, you know, and so we'll see. <laughs> and then, Manage those expectations well. Yeah. I threw five or six bullpens and I, I, and I realized that the ball was still coming pretty well in my hand. So I had, some optimism. And then the Astros called. And there were, to my knowledge, there were like 15 to 20 teams called with varying degrees of interest. Mm-hmm. Anywhere from a two-year deal to a minor league deal. Yeah. Out of the bullpen. Something, anything. Gotcha. And, I, and, and I'm like, that's great. I expected so little of that offseason that, when, but when the Astros called, it was the offer was really aggressive. So um, I told my agent to stop negotiating and let me sign it because <laughs> I, honestly, honestly, because I, I had waited for months and rehabbed and finally got to a point where I was throwing bullpens and all I wanted was a, an opportunity. So it was pretty unbelievable for me to, to have that opportunity to come to this organization and then be part of your group. My, I wouldn't call it my group. Well, I mean, well, you were here, and you I guys, had, you guys had done some really special things. You know, I, being in being in Pittsburgh with a group that I felt really connected with, and I was upset when I was traded from Pittsburgh. But the clubhouses are really similar, mm. and the direction that the organization is headed at the time with Pittsburgh. I mean, they've they the direction has changed a little bit, but right. at the time. That's pretty much what I had left in Pittsburgh. Was a really good group of guys. Organization was headed in a great direction. Young, talented. Yep. Had had a little bit of taste of winning. Yep. Yeah, and so I, I'll never forget when you came over to the Astros. You came to spring training last year. Um, I knew a little bit about you, uh, but we met, and I knew off the bat, I was like, we're going to be friends. Pals. Cool. We're going to be pals. Uh, I met you at the uh, Astros Foundation Gala where you were 
off on your own being super awkward. Oh, I was super nervous. Oh, yeah. I can imagine. Like, you just get thrown into that. Who are all these people? Exactly. You didn't know any of us. You were, we were all dressed up. Yeah. This was your first inundation into the Astros. Yeah, and the Pirates, they never did anything. Like, who was, who was the musical artist? Diana Ross. Yeah, like, are you what is me? that? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I liked going to the, the Pirates Charities Foundation dinner, and, like, I, you know, I knew everybody there, and... It's kind of low key, but it you know we're, we're you know but and then we that show gala is not low it's, key. It's like holy it is, cow, it's bananas. So you were off there, cameras everywhere, people you know in fancy dresses yeah. and suits, and you were out there sipping on a beer on the on the side table, and I saw you, and I th- I said I think that's I think that's Charlie. That's we weird, Chuck. <laughs> well, my my immediately like my feel my like feeling emotions came into it. Yeah, your I'm empathy. Like, I just want everybody to be okay in any, <laughs> any situation I go into. I just want everybody around me to be cool and to be okay and to be in harmony. So I thought, I'm going to go say hey. And I went and said hey. And we talked, sat and chatted for about 15, 20 minutes. And I thought, this yeah, is, this is my that. guy. This yeah, is my guy. You. We're going to be pals. But then I saw you throw for the first time uh, a bullpen when we got to camp. And you were throwing absolute thunder pellets. I'm talking high 90s, power sinkers. And I thought, this is not the guy I thought I was what happened? looking at. Well, so I remember you. I remember the big story was back when you were with the Pirates, the idea that you were throwing a little bit like Roy Halladay and you were throwing a lot more sinkers. And I, and I thought, oh, maybe he's going to throw. Yeah, he's going to be like a guy, maybe like Dallas. Throws a little bit harder than Dallas, but like sink the ball, keep the ball on the ground. I knew you had a good curveball. I didn't know you had that good of a curveball. Then I saw what you were throwing. I was like, no, this is a different, this is a different animal. Did you feel different coming into camp than you had before? I felt different coming into camp than I had before with the Phillies. Yeah. Um, after the 15 season, actually the last month of the 15 season was especially hard for me because um, that whole year was just a roller coaster. And we were in a great spot in the division, like one or two games back. And down the stretch, I just didn't pitch well. I remember being really frustrated in September of 2015. There was a game against the, I don't know, I remember it was the Cubs or St. Louis or something at home. And I remember just trying to throw as hard as I could because I was, I was frustrated. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to throw. And then in uh, Colorado, I made a start in Colorado and I looked up at the radar gun. It was like 94 to 96. And I was like, wow, this is great. Because in spring training, I'd come in ha- having my right hip repaired and I wasn't in shape. Like, I, you know, I was on crutches for a month and I, I wasn't in the gym until maybe January. So I'm underprepared and I'm just kind of like, I'm kind of teetering, trading water. And um, I started after that season because a lot of frustration, kind of, you know, a lot of things. Like you're talking about identity, Halliday, sinker, you know, a little, little awful cutter kind of thing. <clears throat> and... That's who I was. That's who I was trying to be in, in Pittsburgh was this guy that just kept the ball down and sank the ball a little bit. But I think I I, I think that um, I kind of boxed myself in. I think there could have been some expansion of the zone up. I think I could have certainly thrown more curveballs, especially the lefties. But the biggest thing, the biggest change, I think, was getting in the gym and starting a different routine. And then that offseason, also when I was playing catch, I just did it on my own with our with our group. I didn't have a pitching coach around or anything like that. I just listened to my body with my delivery. Yeah. So I went to spring training with the Phillies. And like kind of what you saw, I think they saw over there. I was throwing hard, 
my stuff was good. And that's why I think 2016 was such a disappointment with that injury because I was in a pretty good spot. But it worked out. You know, I, who knows what, what would have happened had I stayed healthy, had a good year, and who knows? For sure. Maybe right? I don't want to Yeah, we're glad to have you here. Goodness. Through game seven. Game seven of the World Series. <sighs> Last guy on the mound, Charlie Morton. If, you, if I would have told you that eight years ago, would you have believed it? Uh, I, well, eight years ago, probably not at all. <laughs> Especially if you would have talked to me eight years ago during in season in 2010 when I was sitting in AAA, sitting on a, got sent down with like a 10, and I'm sitting on a four and a half in AAA, wondering like what we were talking about. I was, I was telling you about how I'd never really pitched that well. Yeah. I'd never pitched well up until AAA, and then I had two good months, I got called up. In my mind, I'm faking it. Like <laughs> I finally found a little something. I got a little bit of something that's working. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But that quickly went away. And I proceeded to have a six the first year, my, my first go at the big leagues. I had a four and a half my second go, and I had a seven and a half by the end of 2010, and I felt like a complete failure. So yeah. we talked about this tonight the idea that uh, having success doesn't teach you a whole lot. Success is not a very good teacher, but failure is a great teacher. Obviously, all of us want to have we want to have success in the big leagues, and we want to pitch well, and we want to win awards and win World Series and do all that kind of stuff. But I remember my years struggling, struggling in the minor leagues, and as soon as I got called up, up and down, up and down, up and down between the big leagues and AAA, you know, really having to grind through that and learn, a learn about myself, like learn who I am as a person, the things I can handle, the things I can't handle, how to handle failure, but then also from a baseball standpoint, like learn to get better. Like you really have to, when you're thrown in the fire like that and you're, and you're not succeeding, you got to figure it out or there's another guy coming right behind you who's going to take your spot. Yeah, well, that's another that goes back to the, the luck thing. Fortunately, there weren't a ton of guys that we were all kind of, that, you know, there weren't a ton of guys that were ready to just take it and run with it. We were all kind of in the same spot. Yeah. And they, fortunately, they gave me another opportunity. But... Like what you're talking about, I mean, like when when you fail and you're you're challenged to your to the core of who you are, not just as a the baseball player, but what are you trying to do with your life? Because that's how you judge yourself, right? The challenges that you're trying to overcome. Yeah. And baseball is, it's not just a job; it's a it's a pursuit, you know, of improvement. And when you're not improving. And you're, you know, teetering or getting lit up and <laughs> <laughs> getting lit up. Yep. Well, what did we, wouldn't when you talk about moving on from those things? Do you think it was for you? Was it a baseball thing? Was it a pitching thing? I always, a, I always said that I started getting better when I started caring less. And people, I think some people take that the wrong way sometimes and think like, oh, well, maybe he just doesn't care that much about about baseball, but I think it was the opposite. Like I cared a lot about, I've always cared a lot about baseball. I've been a baseball fan. I've enjoyed it. I've loved the game. But when I, when I found myself caring so, so much about every living and dying on every pitch, on every hit, on every Homer, every win loss, it did kind of take the fun away from it and made it harder to go out and play the game well and enjoy it. And so I made a conscious effort in 2014 to just go out and enjoy it. And, you know, if I was going to, because 2014, I was, I was basically playing on borrowed time 
at that point, I'd gotten uh, designated by the Rockies and picked up on waivers by the Astros, who were at the time the worst team in baseball. So I was like, I'm, I'm playing with house money here. Let's just go out and have fun, have a good time, let the results happen, and not really worry about it. Win a loss. If this is my last year playing baseball, then you know I want to I want to have fun doing it. And I ended up having you know you one, of the, one of the best years of my life. And um, I've tried to carry that on with me, but it's hard because the more success you have, the more you start to get back, get wrapped up back in that uh, living and dying by every every statistic, which is really hard. But uh, I will say that having having some failure also let me think forward into like, what would I be doing if I wasn't playing baseball? If I was doing something else and baseball was over tomorrow, what would, what would life be like? And I think, I don't want to speak for you, but having a lot of downtime from injuries and stuff like that, I feel like you have curated some pretty good hobbies. Yeah. You're, well, you're, I, would, I would classify you as an extreme hobbyist. <laughs> you just don't half-ass anything. Well, yeah. <laughs> isn't that isn't that the worst when you're you get into something and then you realize that you're you can't do it. You can't get it done. It's the worst feeling. I'm going to pick up this chisel or I'm going to pick up this guitar or I'm going to pick up this whatever and I'm going to figure it out, right? Like you have that though. Isn't you that have- what isn't that what you're supposed to do? I don't know. Like with hobbies, I feel like, so, and I'm guilty of this, I'll pick up something and be like, oh, I feel like doing this. And then two weeks later, I'll be like, why did I ever want to do that? I'm over that. But you, for instance, you love barbecue. You yeah, didn't I got just obsessive like, about it. Yeah, you didn't just like think, I'm going to tinker around and like smoke a, a Boston butt. No, you like got I into it. I got the books it. and got, the videos. Yeah. Yeah, and I spent a ton of time. I, yeah, I mean... I don't know. I mean, it's an, it's kind of annoying, huh? I guess I love it. I think it's incredibly interesting. So what are your hobbies? You, you, you're very into smoking meats. Yeah, very into it. Barbecue. Yep. Uh, music. Music. You play guitar. Yep. Um, I, I did get into woodworking, and I, woodworking. I really like it a lot. I, actually, I, I loved it. It was, um, it was really rewarding. You're like a real life Ron Swanson. You know that, right? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not the hardcore libertarian. He's very anti. Very hands off. <laughs> anti. <laughs> the character is loosely based on Charlie Morton, mm-hmm. or I'm loosely based on. <laughs> <laughs> or you've you've taken your cues from from Ron Swanson. Or this is all a video game. <laughs> We're all being controlled by somebody else. Uh, no, so you are, but you have all the stuff. You have all the woodworking stuff. Yeah. What have you built? My, the crown jewel is the the dining room table. Yeah. And that took up most of my time. Like we put it, I like we built this huge shelving unit in the, the garage and, and I, and I built the, the, the tool bench, you know, like the heavy duty with my pal. So we we bought a home in Bradenton, and and it needed some work. Like we painted the whole house, and I put up some um, some crown molding, and that it just took forever. Like it's one of those things where you're like we were talking about. Like it's a, it was a hobby, so 
I didn't have to get it done like right that second. And I'm sure my wife, I was driving my wife crazy with this stuff because like <laughs> I got the tape up and you know, and, and all this stuff and I'm researching all these tools and all this. And um, cause I, I got into it, like I, I got into it. I, my, my dad was not a hardcore woodworker, but he, he could get stuff done. He could put stuff together. So I remember that kind of kind of thing. But the the woodworking to me, the the most rewarding part was the getting the chisels out and the hand planes. You know where you're really you're like feeling the wood and you're you're shaping it how you want to. You know you you see the like the vision of what you want to do and then you can actually do it with your hands. Like that's so cool. You know that's what that's what that dining room table, like I'm hoping it holds up for I, for a generation or two. I have so much faith in that. I mean, that's can you make my bats for this year? If I gave I, you a nice piece a of hickory, or, yeah, what's that? What it's called? A lathe. A lathe. I think that's probably what they use, and I don't have one. I, I know the whole like hyper fast spinning thing with the you know. I, I never got into it. I I I really like the. The stationary piece of wood. Okay. And I'm gonna, you know, I like the Morris and tenon joints, and I like the the like the 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 pegs, like how wood moves and over time, and how you have to give your your woodworking space for the natural adaptations that occur over time with you know wood in its environment. Yeah. It's like super cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of baby it a little bit. You know, oh, you're gonna go this way a little bit over time. So I'm gonna put you here, and it's gonna work out. And hopefully, it will. Hopefully, that table will be be there. But like this off season, I did a. My wife wanted me to make this um this this blanket holder, and it's a it's a ladder. You know, it's like a five six foot ladder with five or six rungs, and you. Put the your blankets over them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so I made that, but unfortunately, the uh, the the wood stain it wasn't dark enough. So there was a blunder with the with the wood stain, and it's it's in the house now. But I'm, I'm hoping it won't get back there from the season. In there, you know, the blankets are covered in you know that sweet brown mahogany colored <laughs> stain because <laughs> I. I, I I did. I pulled like an amateur move with the with the wood stain. We're building a. Uh, we're about to start building a house in Atlanta, and you need to come. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna contract you out to build something. Yeah, for the me. the hidden pantry. The hidden pantry we talked about. Yeah. The one thing that you could not live without in a house. Yeah. Well, you can live without it, but the coolness factor of the hidden pantry because when you walk in, you know, you're looking around all the cabinets. Oh, this is beautiful. Oh yeah, but come check this out, and then you open up that panel door. And it's like, there's just stuff in there. It makes you feel a little bit like James Bond or yeah. something like Well, that. whatever. Yeah. Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Yeah, with your, you know, your tomato sauce that no one even knew was back there. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. Just wait. Let me pull this book. And the shell, this whole cabinet goes away. And then that's, yeah. all, look at all my spices back here. Yeah, and I, I had no idea what that was. And when I found out what it was and what it, that meant, you were sold. Yeah. That was it? Yeah, that was it. All right, there's a couple questions I like to ask. Number one, the last time you opened your music app of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, whatever mm -hmm. it is, what was the last thing you listened to on purpose? 
It was probably Tyler Childers' new album, newish album that came out in August of last year, Purgatory. Tyler Childers is a, what kind of artist? He's an alternative country guy. So right around the same time that, well, it wasn't the same time, but when when country music started to go towards the direction that it is now, which is essentially pop music with a Southern accent, um, there was an, there was a, an, a, a growing movement in in Texas, in Oklahoma, and I think it had originated in Stillwater, Oklahoma, called Red Dirt Music in Texas yeah. country. And this was a little bit before I started actually getting into it. But around 2002, I remember going to the field and I was sitting in one of my teammates. I can't remember who it was, but his truck and he was playing Chris Knight, It Ain't Easy Being Me. So I don't know if you know that song. I don't. But Chris Knight is from Slaughter's, Kentucky. Okay. And it's a really, really rural town in Kentucky. But he was part of that Texas country movement, like the modern one. And singer-songwriter, like he wrote songs about his brother being shot and him enacting revenge or getting his heart broken or being a trucker and just being out on the road all by himself all the time. Just these, these like really lonely songs. Right up your alley. <clears throat> well, it, the simplicity of it allows you to see the depth of what he's trying to say in his songs. And He's a storyteller. Yeah. So this Texas country thing, that's, when I, that's what I really got into, that alternative country. Chris Knight and Pat Green at the time. Pat Green. Do you know about Pat Green? You know, that before um, he signed with a Nashville label and Wade Bowen, Randy Rogers, the Eli Young band. Like this is all back before they went to Tennessee. But but Tyler. Sold out and went to Nashville. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> so Jason Isbell is part, like I would I classify him as alternative country. Mm-hmm. Sturgill Simpson and Sturgill Simpson produced Purgatory, oh, Tyler really? Childers' album. So Sturgill's album uh, last year, two years ago, was, was and still is one of my favorite country albums ever. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got a voice that won't quit. Right. Well, and like, like Chris Stapleton, like mm. those three, Sturgill Simpson, Jason Isbell, you know, Chris Stapleton. Yeah. And I guess Sturgill Simpson kind of took Tyler Childers under his wing. And I was like, hey, I got you. And he All right, this, helped, is a, yeah. this is a good rec then. This is a good recommendation. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah. So Tyler Childers, Purgatory. It's a, it's, a, it's a push play and listen to it album. It's, it's a get a vinyl and stick it on my record player. Maybe. See, it. I don't know. Because it, it might, it might for, depending on your musical taste, it might be a little too country. There's some elements of bluegrass in there. All right. But I really enjoyed it. All right, I really enjoyed it. We'll put a link. We'll put a link to it on this on this podcast, just for you and our fans. I'm well. I'm hoping. I'm hoping what little I can do get the word out. Tyler, we're on your we're on your side here. We're gonna do what we can. Um, if baseball wouldn't have worked out, what would you have wanted to end up doing? I probably would have pursued teaching United States history. U.S. history, right on. Yeah. Any particular reason? When I. Well, I grew I grew up in New England, and there's a lot of. You can see the history in the in the land. Like there's a lot of um, there's a lot remaining from the 1600s, the 1700s. 
1800s, the buildings the that are still standing. So New, Eng- New England's known for uh, the stone walls that are up there that are still, you know, that are still standing, that are still pretty much where they were. And there's an appreciation, I think there's a deep appreciation for the fact that that area of the country, um, our, our country originated from that area of the country. You know, a lot of the the ideas and principles that our country is based on came from that area of the country. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think that kind of leads you to that. If you're I love it. I'm a, I'm a, his, one of my favorite books is 1776 by David McCullough. Yeah, great book. And it's so good. And yeah, I, I so I get it. Um I could see you being a US history teacher though. Well, the depth of the interest came from my grandfather on my mother's side who was who I was very close with. My my uh my grandfather on my father's side fought in World War II, but my uh, we weren't as close as my grandfather on my mother's side. And he was a navigator in a, a B-24, a bomber. Wow. And he was, um, you know, the greatest generation. They talk about that. And and he, he basically dedicated his life to helping uh, servicemen and women that were in uh, attack helicopters because he was, he, after, after the war, he, he went in a, uh, pilot school and he wanted to stay involved he worked at frankfurt arsenal in philadelphia but he wanted to stay involved and he was basically a rocket scientist um he developed uh, weapon systems for every attack um, united states attack helicopter that we've made and um he worked for sikorsky for for pretty much the rest of his life and he and i i think the 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 military aspect of our history and knowing my grandfather to be a, a good man that really led me in that direction to be interested in history and also when i was very young i remember my parents took me to fredericksburg virginia to the um, the small area that's still there the from the battle of fredericksburg and the civil war and um i remember talking to my mom about it and um who were the good good guys and who were the bad guys? Because, you know, in my mind, everything was really binary and like black and white. For and, sure. And I had really no understanding of what actually happened in our country and um, in the 1860s. So when she answered the question, I don't remember exactly how she worded it, but I was left with the impression that there was uh, very, there were very uh, complex issues that led up to the Civil War. And that made me really interested in, even more so, in how our country was was shaped. Figuring out how those complex issues are still happening in America now. Yeah. Well, and, and I didn't know that at the time. You know, as a how I don't know, seven eight years right. old. The fact that uh, Americans fought each other, you know, neighbors, cousins, brothers, yeah, fought each other. You know, to th- 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 those were concepts that really struck me as outlandish and and, over over the course of my life i've spent a decent amount of time just studying just the civil war right like we 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 read like uh collier brothers i don't know if you knew my brother sam is dead i don't know if you ever read those books or Mm -hmm. but in in elementary school even then they had us reading about the revolutionary war and how it you know in our area of the country how we were directly impacted 
Yeah. If you could give, no, I'll, I'll put it this way. What was one piece of advice that you got your first year or two in the big leagues that stuck with you? I remember talking to Tom Glavin about working out and he seemed to be a big proponent of just listening to your body. And for the longest time, I didn't. For six, seven, eight years, I didn't listen to my body. Like I just, I always thought that, uh, and I, because I always looked up to guys like John Smoltz and uh, Chris Carpenter, Adam Wainwright, Roy Halladay. All just monsters. Yeah, and I, I looked up to them and I always thought, man, because I always, I always heard about how Halliday would get to the field at like 4.30 a.m. and be done by 6.30 a.m. But like when guys are just showing up and I always thought, man, to do that, you just got to kill yourself. Uh, you know, in the weight room. Yeah. And I think baseball is, is kind of headed in the direction where you're encouraged to listen to your body. I guess, it, I, I, you know, I look back and I'm like, man, I, maybe I should have listened to him a little bit better. Also, I remember walking down for one of my starts in Atlanta and John Smoltz was walking next to me and he was like, hey, can you see yourself doing this 300 more times? And I was like... I can't, I can't, I don't know, pal. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, um, I'm barely understanding that I'm doing this yeah, one time. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I hope I make it to my next one, Mr. Smoltz. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it makes, it, looking back, it does make me wonder because I never saw myself that way. I never saw myself as a guy who'd be crossing that line so many times. If I could, go back and say, hey, you know, think of yourself a little bit differently. You know, have a little bit different a goal that's a little bit grander, more grand. Hey, grander, that works for me. Instead of just looking to next week and hoping that you get there. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know from talking to me, I, it's like I'm, who knows? You know, who knows what I'm thinking? You know? <laughs> this is what I love about you, Chuck. You're, you're, you think you're a realist, but you're a pessimist who is also one of the more talented people I've ever met in baseball. So it's a strange, it's a strange dynamic, and it's one of the reasons I love you. But you t when you talk to guys that are young and you can see it happening, and you can see oh, like absolutely. five, six, seven years down the road, that dude, if he stays relatively healthy, he's going to be legit. He's going to be a He's going to be here. He's going to be a guy. For sure. Just the way they carry themselves, just the way that they, they seem to perceive themselves. And I'm always jealous of people like that. I'm like, how do you do that? Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were. Just how do you have this that. insane? <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. We, were talking, we were making. The how joke do you that, know that about yourself? What you know? happened to you when you were young that makes you so confident now? Yeah. So when I look back at a moment like that, had I known at that moment, I don't know how many. I think I've. It'll be. I'm somewhere around maybe just under like 200 starts. But if I had known, you know, at that moment in 2008 when I'm walking next to John Smoltz walking down the about to pass Bobby Cox and walk out to make a start. You know what I mean? If, if I had known that, who knows? Like maybe my career would have been way different. Like if, if I had just made myself have a different, a little bit of a different attitude. Yeah. The fake it, fake it until you make it. Yeah. Fake it till you actually feel that way. Yeah. And I don't say that selfishly. I just mean that for younger guys or people just in everyday life trying to you know, get a direction, trying to see themselves where they see themselves and what they want to be. Like, I think if you can actually convince yourself 
that, hey, I can be, and tell yourself, hey, I can be really successful. I can do this. It's, it's half the battle. Oh, yeah. I think it's, it's probably more than half the battle. I think uh, the confidence is, confidence is such an underrated thing in, in baseball. People always talk about execute, 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 execute. But confidence for me is the catalyst that allows me to execute pitches. If I'm not confident yeah. for, for whatever reason, it's so much harder to execute a pitch. Um, and I'm sure it goes both ways for position guys too, but confidence is something that I was, I was listening to a quote the other day that was saying that confidence is, is one thing and confidence can kind of be, like you said, confidence can kind of be faked, but courage, courage is the, like the defining factor. Of, yeah. What, what is that? What do you think that is? So What's cur- courage? Courage, I think is looking at it, looking at it in reality, like looking at the reality of the situation and still stepping into it, knowing that, like for me, stepping into a, a spot knowing I'm not going to be Nolan Ryan. Like I'm never going to be Justin Verlander in terms of stuff, but still stepping into that with courage saying, that doesn't matter. I can still get the job done. Yeah. The, well, that sounds like when people, when people come up to you and be like, Hey, where do you slot in this team's pitching staff? Where do you see yourself? Who are you on this pitching staff? And I'm like, it doesn't matter because, well, I guess it does matter where I see myself or if I do or not. But it certainly doesn't matter where you see me. It certainly doesn't matter at all where you see me. Right. Because when you when I get the ball, I gotta be I gotta go out there and be Nolan Ryan. Yeah. I like at that moment, I have to be the guy. When they give me that ball, I gotta be the guy. Yeah. That's the great thing about the great and awful thing about being a pitcher is that you're out there on an island and it really is just you. There's nobody else who's gonna throw the ball for you. And you have a team around you that kind of holds you up and supports you, but you're the guy and it kind of hinges on your shoulders a little bit. So you have to have a little bit of that confidence. You have to have a, a, a hell of a lot of courage to go out there and consistently do that, you know, over and over again, almost 200 times in your career this time, at this, at this point. That's a, it's a great career shock though. Congratulations. We're doing all right. We're doing all right, pal. You do, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. The joke is we're not going to make it, but we're actually going to make <clears> it. <throat> hey, thanks for being on the, on the this show. This is awesome. Man. Thank you. This is fantastic. Um, we will plug Tyler's album and, uh, yeah, I would I would say have a great year, but let's us have a great year. <laughs> Why not? Let's us have a great year. Yeah. We might find ourselves out there again, you know, being the last people on the field of any game played in the season. Can we make it before November 1st this year? That was a long that was a long time to be playing baseball last year. Well, is it going to be pushed back cuz of the off days? Oh, I don't know. At the end of the season ends September 30th this year, so I'm assuming It's going to be the same. It's going to be the exact same. All right, guys. Well, we will see you on November 1st. Thanks for listening, and we will get back to you next week. Bye.